0: microdosing to to a microdose is a small sub perceptual dose of a drug any drug you could microdose chocolate you can microdose lsd you can microdose marijuana Um, you could microdose donuts which i was contemplating as i was standing outside
1: welcome to the sounds of sand presented by science and non-duality offering dialogue on the bridge between science and spirituality today we bring you to live talks from sand conferences with psychedelic researcher James Fedeman and author Ilet Waldman for this frank, humorous, and mind-expanding exploration of the healing potential of microdosing, today on The Sounds of Sand. If you're ready to explore together, we'll meet you on the other side. Welcome to
2: science and non-duality. What is non-duality?
1: The universal forces. It's
2: the collective conscious, being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That
0: matter is energy, energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about.
2: There's a language without
1: nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality.
2: And, and just this morning, as I was driving the freeway, and my iPhone said, I'm not going to tell you where to turn off. And I thought, I'm at the mercy (laughs) of this little object whose electromagnetic radiations are slowly destroying either my brain or my crotch, depending on where I'm keeping it. (laughs) So I pulled over, (laughs) and we had a talk. And I explained that this was really an important group to talk to. (laughs) And it said, I'll give you an alternate route (laughs) that the other map app won't know. (laughs) So it's nice to be here. (laughs) And just to be clear, How many of you have never had any psychedelic experience? Okay. Oh, it's wonder I rarely meet you. (laughs) (laughs) And of those of you who kept your hands down, how many of you have experienced microdosing? Okay. Now, one of the things that you have noticed is that there's no science yet, just worldwide use. (laughs) Though there is something I call citizen science, which is the thousands and thousands of people who have talked to each other and helped each other, um, as well as, as the the mushroom companies who write me uh, thank you notes for all the the kits they're selling. (laughs) So a microdose of a psychedelic, and I'll just use the term microdose from here on, is a tenth to a twentieth of the amount one would take if one were having a recreational dose. If one's talking about a transformational dose, we're really dealing with much higher numbers. But we're talking approximately 10 micrograms of LSD, between a tenth of a gram and a uh, 4 tenths of a gram of mushrooms, and you can take it from there. The discovery, and and like everything else, when you deal with the natural world and with the plant world, uh, it's always rediscovery uh, by. By ignorant white people, <laughs> that's our our system. <laughs> um, but for me, the discovery was Robert Fort told me that Albert Hoffman had told him about a low dose, and I thought that was interesting. My entire career has been with with relatively high doses. You know, if it isn't transcendence, and you don't vanish as a being, and you're not one with all things, I'm not that interested. (laughs) So what does the universe do for me? It says, why don't you look at the absolute other end? At the most boring use of psychedelics ever created. (laughs) No mystical visions, no snakes eating you alive. (laughs) No angelic beings saying, you're really special. (laughs) And I, and I, and everyone else is too, but you can't hear that. <laughs> so microdosing, it turns out, makes you feel better. And as Eilid's um, as great book says, it's called a really good day. And those of you who have not microdosed have had really good days. So you know what I'm talking about. Now. The first question was, why, does this little teeny bit have any effect at all? And one of the nice things is, is there's research. And there's a lot of research on, on very low and microdoses. There's a book coming out in a couple of weeks um, called The Science of Microdosing. And the research is all very clear. Is there are no effects below 25 mics. Now, the problem with all that research is that they were looking only for what we would call classic psychedelic effects. So they missed everything else. But being good scientists, they said there are no effects, rather than here are the things we looked for, and there weren't those. Would have been a little more correct. The other problem, the other question was, given how amazing microdosing is, and I'll go into it in a little bit, why hadn't we been noticing, at least for the past 50 years? Because remember, most LSD work in the world comes in two, two phases. One, up till the government stopped it, and it was the most researched psychiatric drug on the planet. Several thousand research papers, and there was the period of enormous use, which is at least in the United States since it became illegal. Twenty-six million Americans have tried LSD, and that figure goes up four to six hundred thousand each year, no matter what's going on in the in the drug world. But nobody was paying attention to microdoses. Well, curiously, I was going back to what Sandoz had done. Because in the good old days, you wrote Sandoz, and they sent you some LSD and said, tell us how you're using it. And the government, if you were doing it that way, gave you an exemption to do that, and you were on your way. Sandoz only provided LSD in ampules that's a little bit of glass with a little bit of liquid, 25 mics or tablets, 25 mics. No one ever considered that there was anything else below that. Well, there is. And in fact, there's a lovely thing which you might just think about with other pharmaceuticals you may have been given. Uh, Albert Hoffman said, on the package, when Sandoz sent it out, it said, before you give this to anyone else, you must use it yourself. Now, that's packaging. <laughs> but of course, what happened in many cases, is you used it yourself and you said, why am I going to give this <laughs> right, to a bunch of overweight sophomores to see if their blood sugar changes? <laughs> now, the nice thing about microdosing is it's been used for thousands of years by indigenous people. And I was brought, this was brought home to me in a very somewhat embarrassing way. I was feeling Jim the explorer had discovered this new way and was promulgating it fairly wildly. And an anthropologist said to me, Did it ever occur to you that indigenous people might have tried small doses, given that they've tried every other level of dose? (laughs) And I said, until you mentioned it, <laughs> and then when you begin to look really carefully at some even of the anthropologists, they have a little throwaway line. There's a 1977 article uh, about the Wecho in National Geographic, and it says they 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 consider peyote a you know a major sacrament, and they use it to um, to make it easier to have long, hot walks, to, to, see, to have visions and to see their gods. And I thought, well, those are dosage levels. <laughs> because some of you may know that if you took a fairly large dose of LSD or peyote, you would not take a long, hot walk. <laughs> you might lie in the sun <laughs> and hope that your eyeballs don't get burned out. <laughs> So low doses are out there. And obviously, in any hunting and gathering society, South America, um, hunters really do a lot better with something that increases stamina, increases visual acuity, and increases the willingness to focus very, very carefully for long amounts of time. So it's an obvious use. But what happened? is i started asking people would you be interested in trying this very low dose and like some of you i have a lot of friends who said oh sure man
0: <laughs>
2: that's cool yeah <laughs> I haven't tried that <laughs> how about next week i'm kind of stoned this weekend with something higher <laughs> so i began to get reports and the first reports were yes there were effects and that was at that moment rather exciting. Then I kept asking people, and then people would ask people, and then people who didn't know me would ask people. And I began to get reports from other countries and from people I wouldn't normally meet. And I began to compile the lists of things they said it helped. And it began to get very puzzling. And let me read you a list. And this was, most of this is from 2015. This is things that were improved by the use of 10 micrograms or slightly less every third day. The, the, the kind of protocol I suggested for, for exploration, and for exploration only, was one day on and two days off. By the way, that's become, and I read about it, the Fatiman protocol in which your entire life is now committed to that schedule. <laughs> I only asked people to do it for a month and said, do what you want after that and let me know. And it turns out after a month, most of the people in our sample, and we're talking thousands, do it less often. So it turns out it's, its major addictive properties are vastly overblown. So what does it help? Anxiety? Not, not general anxiety, not if you're just anxious, but academic anxiety, party anxiety, social anxiety. Asperger's, more ease in social situations. And people who are kind of serious, because most Asperger's people are fairly serious and also like to keep really good records, um, they tend to want to take more than that for the same effect that for the rest of us, 10 is enough. Bipolar, mood elevation during the depression, which is most people, uh, we recommend not doing something during your manic phase. And usually, you're probably happy not to. <laughs> My favorite in the early ones was no post-Burning Man crash. And as this young woman wrote, a first. <laughs> creativity, this is technical creativity, coding, machine design, a lot of others. Uh, recently, we've been looking at concussions. And maybe we'll have time to get back to that. But if not, we'll, we'll take it in the question time. But c- concussions turn out to often um, are alleviated in, in many ways with microdosing. And that's something I want to really do a study on. People stopped using or decreased their use of coffee, cigarettes, Adderall, a lot of antidepressants. And what people now write in, they say, oh, I'm, I'm on this horrible pharmaceutical. I want a microdose. I write back. The word is taper. The word withdrawal, by the way, does not appear in the pharmaceutical literature. But how you get off something is to take less and less and less of it, uh, because most of the antidepressants are incredibly addictive, as some of you unfortunately know. Ice pick headaches. That's a headache where it feels like there's an ice pick going into your eye. They take about one minute, but they can be alleviated in a couple of seconds with a microdose. The long version of that is called a cluster headache. Usually that takes a much higher dose of psychedelics, but a number of people have reported that microdosing solved their clusters as well, and we'd like to look at that. One of the things that you look for when you're getting these reports is changes that nobody asked for, because those are really interesting. In general, when people are microdosing, they improve their health habits food choices, exercise, yoga, meditation. Um, early on, a wonderful guy who used to write about 2,500 words a day to me. I know a lot about him. <laughs> <laughs> and his children and his ex-wife and so on. <laughs> but he's, he was a junk food kind of guy when he wasn't smoking dope. And he said, I looked at the menu, and by God, I wanted the salad. <laughs> so. What I want you to get out of that is these changes in habits are not by willpower. They seem to occur as, a, as an effect. There are no, by the way, there are no side effects. There are only effects of things. Um, learning. Languages, advanced math. A lot of people said, I was much better able to focus in class. Even my lousy teachers got interesting. <laughs> And a couple of people have said, I was able to look at the PowerPoint once and then just make notes. I didn't have to keep going back and forth. Uh, and people basically talked about better grades and easier exams and so forth. One of the ones that was wonderful because you just don't think psychedelics, <coughs> menstrual periods, troubling emotional or physical PMS, a lot of people are reporting improvements to the extent of from horrible to normal. And we have a little sub-study going on that. Physical skills, musical instruments, drumming, composition, flying a plane, driving. Trauma, this is not going to eliminate trauma, but it seems to decrease the triggering. And one of the ones that is peculiar was um, much less procrastination. And when I looked at this, I thought, that's really cool. But then I thought, oh my god, what if the pharmaceutical industry sees this and decides that procrastination is a disease? (laughs) They'll be out there. (laughs) A few people improved in stuttering, Um, writer's block, a lot of journalists who've done articles on microdosing indicate that it's great for first drafts. (laughs) (laughs) And there are two groups of journalists, ones who would write, I am microdosed for a month, and then I talk to this guy. The others were, I talked to this guy, and then afterwards, I wrote him that I was microdosing. (laughs) And people basically have improved work, amount, discrimination, flow, quality. Uh, they also indicate that they are, they are more comfortable with those awful people at work. <laughs> They're also, I have a couple of notes that say, boy, if people knew that it, what it did for your libido, you would have a product. <laughs> um, we haven't seen that as a generalization, but you're welcome to check it out. <laughs> so what happened with this research is we started reporting it. We reported it at MAPS, reported in Prague and England. Berlin, and most recently, of course, go to Horizon. And what happened at the same time was what you might call a media feeding frenzy, which is there was one article, and then there were eight articles that either quoted it or just stole it. And then there was just an endless round of articles until every magazine had to have had their microdosing article. And each article, of course, led to more people trying it. And more people trying it would write to our site, microdosingpsychedelics.com. That's with a plural, psychedelics. And they would sign in for information and join our study. And the study was take it for a month every couple of days. And since we were now doing a more formal study, uh, tell us about your emotional states for the prior month. Tell us why you wanted microdose, and then of course, We can see from your numbers what happens. And what happens in general is that, and we we used a very standard uh, instrument called PANAS. It's positive and negative uh, affect states. And we picked a very general, well-known instrument so people wouldn't say, why didn't you use a general, well-known instrument? It's not that great. But what it basically said is, when people are microdosing, their positive emotions go up, and their negative emotions declined. Now, antidepressants, for the few of you they work for, have a partial similar effect. They tend to make negative emotions go down, which is you you, you are much better able to stand being unhappy. Microdoses work (laughs) differently. Which is you not only are less unhappy, but you're more happy. And that's remarkable. And as the media frenzy continued, and it continues to this day, uh, right now there's a little sub-unit on Reddit of 20,000 people talking to each other about microdoses. Uh, if you go to the YouTube, the, the highest a single and not, not bad um, how to microdose has 600,000 hits. There's a, there's a group called the Third Wave, that's one word, thirdwave.com, who give classes on how to microdose and are generally setting up kind of friendship units, kind of like psychedelic societies uh, around. Um, there's also a lovely guy in England who sell you a microdose kit. In case you don't know how to measure, 10 micrograms. He also includes sterile gloves. <laughs> and I think it's in even a little wooden box. It's really quite lovely. <laughs> well, and because of this huge interest in our, our sample, is from 59 countries. So when I say it's it, one of the things I've learned is psychedelics are available worldwide. Um, What's my time? <laughs> okay, um, I got to tell you just one story then. There's I got a letter from Namibia. Okay, everyone who knows, they could immediately go to a map and put their finger on Namibia. Don't raise your hands; you'll embarrass the people around you. <laughs> he had had, again, those of you who know psychedelics. He had had shingles. Shingles, if you don't take care of them, for some people, it's basically pain. It's pain, pain, pain. This was his third month. He was no longer pretty much sleeping. I mean, it was terrible. He'd done all the things you can do if you start too late. He'd never had any psychedelic experience, and he wrote, he said, but I had a friend in the capital who had some mushrooms, and I just thought it might be a good idea. This is why I think, you know, divine plays with us. 45 minutes later, he was out of pain. That's what I said, woo. <laughs> and I was so excited. I wrote him back and other things. I was so excited because I wanted to tell my colleague, Sophia, who was presenting in Prague. And when she got back to the States, I called her. and You know, I'm going to tell you this terrific story. And I said, shingles. She said, you know, in Prague, two women came up to me, hugged me, and wept. I said, yeah. She said, shingles. Now, those of you who are into neuroanatomy and brain chemistry and all the things that have not actually proved very useful yet, (laughs) but you get those great pictures, (laughs) you can figure out why 10 micrograms of LSD can help shingles. And I'll give you one more, even geekier one. This is a negative. This is people who shouldn't microdose. People with red-green colorblindness. Some of you may know what a tracer is. <laughs> Those of you that don't, when you take a regular psychedelic, you see a light source, and you move your eye away, and, the, and there's a little thin line of light that follows you. It's a tracer. People with red-green colorblindness with microdosing, have those tracers for days. Because we, they, we had a few of them in our study, and they all dropped out. And Sophia wrote them and said, why'd you drop out?" And they said, tracers. And Sophia, being a real scientist, she said, let me talk to you, Jim, in a couple of days. So in a couple of days, I, she said, I had a friend who has red-green blindness. Yes, it's true. <laughs> she called him, would you please microdose? Yes, there are tracers. What we're doing now, here, so we're, we, you know, so it's out there. We've explored the island. The, the event space of microdosing has come into being. It's like exploring a tropical island. There's just all kinds of things in it that we don't understand, but they're there. <coughs> the next thing that happens after, first there's the people who say, I don't believe anything actually, even the sunrise, unless there's a double blind study. And they always, at the end of an article, someone says, well, there hasn't been a double-blind study. How do we know that all these thousands of people, it isn't just a placebo? One of, one of our many subjects wrote in and said, I don't care if it's a placebo. I haven't felt this good in 20 years. <laughs> and I just loved them to do the one on shingles <laughs> and see if there's a placebo. But anyway. That's, What's happening is there are 12 countries in which the usual correct, double-blind, cross, blah, blah, blah studies are starting. Canada, New Zealand, um, maybe even the USA. It's a little harder because um, it's, very, it's costly if you have to keep watching people. And in the US, as someone said, it's very hard to talk to our university and say, we'd like to give people a Schedule one drug every couple of days and just let them go home. And the university says, if I say no, what's it going to cost me? If I say yes, what could it cost me? So anyway, 12 other countries are working on it. And we were about to go out of business, and then we thought. What could we do that nobody else can do? Well, we have thousands of people who have microdosed, and we have enough of their information. And they microdosed up to maybe a year and a half ago. But we only asked them to tell us for a month, and many of them didn't tell us that long. So we are asking approximately 8,000 people to tell us what were the long-term, of effects for you, if you microdosed, if you stopped, how often you do it, what's going on now. Because we're the only group that can really do that, because we have this huge base to start from. And that will will actually be better data than is available for most pharmaceuticals. Uh, Little dirty secret. Most pharmaceutical research does not go beyond six months. That which you have been taking for 15 years? No data. So we're trying to move things along. um, Because it is available, as as someone pointed out, mushrooms do not know they're illegal. (laughs) And that's probably what we're going to stop with, because um, there's so many people now that want to do the research, and they're in positions to do so. And the first group did a beautiful little study in Amsterdam. There was a meeting of a psychedelic society, and they, the researchers said, would you mind if we made this a research evening? Um, everybody gets a little bit of truffle. Psychedelic truffle is actually, it's a mushroom that just grows underground. Um, and for peculiar reasons, it's legal, more legal than, than the mushroom. So people took some um, intelligence kind of tests, and then they um, truffled. <laughs> Might as well make up a verb when you have a moment. <laughs> and then later in the evening, they took the tests again. Super clean research, called open, you know, open source, so they knew. Um, and it turned out of the three kinds of intellectual uh, activity they were looking at, two improved and one didn't. Um, it's a very beautiful, clean research. And what's wonderful is it took about three hours to get the data. See, my friends in the, in the hard science world, um, they do a study. And you've read some of them. You know, 12 subjects. How long did it take you to get the subjects? A year. What it cost, $80,000. And I say, well, I've got five to 10,000 subjects. And it costs awfully little, particularly at my salary. <laughs> and we have a whole different way of doing science, which is called citizen science, which is you find out, you tell us, you help other people. We now have a few things where we say, don't use microdosing, as I say, for anxiety, um, colorblindness, very few else. And that's where we're going. So that um, we are returning to the indigenous model, which is you work with people you know, and you work with people in your own life, and you find out how something works. And if it, it's the nice thing about microdosing, if it doesn't work, you stop. If it's unpleasant in any way, you stop. And that's the end of it.
0: Years ago, and I am purposely vague about that number. The reason for my vagueness is that the statute of limitations on the possession of LSD is three years. So let's just say more than three years. A number of years ago, I uh, woke up one morning, took a little cobalt blue bottle out of my fridge and deposited two drops of diluted LSD under my tongue. I'd never taken LSD before. I'd never taken any psychedelic before. My experience with drugs is, I would say, more than some people, less than Presidents Bush and Obama. Um, I'd smoked marijuana in high school, a little bit in college, a little bit when I came to California after the medical marijuana uh, laws were passed. I'd tried, I think, cocaine once or twice in college. That did not go well. And that was basically it. Um, Psychedelics always terrified me. I had all of these I had sort of accepted all of this mythology around psychedelic use. I remember when I met my husband and we were talking about, you know, exchanging information. How many people did you sleep with? How many people did I sleep with? What kind of drugs did you use? What kind of drugs did I use? I said something like, oh, well, if you use LSD more than eight times, you become insane. Because that's what they taught us at, you know, DARE. (laughs) And uh, my husband said to me, ah, do I seem insane? Um. So I, but I never tried it. But what happened in my life at that time was I had experienced a profound depression. I have a mood disorder, a cycling mood disorder that I'll talk about a little more in the breakout session. But. Um, I had the medication regimen that had been keeping my mood stable for a number of years had collapsed, it started to fail. And I couldn't find an alternative that would make me, that would lift my spirits enough and lift me out of this depression. And things got worse, and they got worse, and I began to experience episodes of suicidal ideation, which I think most of you probably know is just sort of imagining suicide. And then those periods of suicidal ideation became more intense, and I began to do things like evaluate the contents of my medicine cabinet to see what would kill me the most effectively. Um, Anybody have a guess on what the most dangerous thing in your medicine cabinet is? Tylenol, exactly. Um, It was that moment when I was looking, when I was shaking a bottle of extra strength Tylenol to see exactly how much I had in it that I realized I had to do something drastic. Um, At that moment, I was looking through my bookcase for something else and my eye was caught by this book by James Fadiman, who some of you might have heard speak here. The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. I had never opened that book before. When you're a writer and when you're an academic, books arrive at your house in this kind of... It's the, really the best thing about being a writer is the free books that sort of drift in on this tide. Um, and you read some of them, and a lot of them you put on your bookshelves. And, I, and I, because I lectured and taught at UC Berkeley, I created a seminar called The Legal and Social Implications of the War on Drugs. A lot of books on drug policy would come in with a tide, but I mostly read fiction. So I had never looked at this book, and I'm not so much with the psychedelic exploration. Um, because I have a mood disorder, I'd always considered the inside of my head to be a very terrifying place. And I don't want to dip into that any more than I absolutely had to. But for some reason, in that period of suicidality, I took that book off the shelf, and I opened it up to this chapter on microdosing. Um, microdosing to, to A microdose is a small sub-perceptual dose of a drug, any drug. You could microdose chocolate, you can microdose LSD, you can microdose marijuana, um, you could microdose donuts, which I was contemplating as I was standing outside. <laughs> I can't microdose donuts. You might be able to. <laughs> I am capable only of the macrodose of the carbohydrate fat sugar combination. Um, so But a microdose, when we're talking about psychedelics drugs, is typically a one-tenth dose if the lo- if 100. If 10 is a microdose, then 100 is a, is a psychedelic dose. So, in LSD, the, typical, dose of, the p- typical psychedelic dose of LSD is 100 micrograms to 200 micrograms if you're really, really aggressive. And a microdose is somewhere between 10 and 20 micrograms. So, the idea behind microdosing is that it is designed to be sub-perceptual. You don't want to trip. If I said to you right now that I had given all of you a microdose, none of you would really have noticed that. You might just, hence the title of my book and my talk, at the end of the day you might think to yourself, Wow, that was a really good day. Um, But you wouldn't see things burst into bloom. You wouldn't have kaleidoscopic colors drifting through your field of vision. You wouldn't necessarily feel that sense of oneness with the universe that we're talking about so much over the course of the past few days. Um, I read about this microdosing and suddenly, for no reason that I can really explain, I decided that I wanted to try it. Um, There were other options open to me at that period of deep depression. I could have tried electroconvulsive therapy, I could have tried ketamine, I could have checked myself into a hospital. But microdosing seemed to me like an option that I really wanted to explore. But I was still afraid. So the first thing I did is I called Jim Fadiman out of the blue. Um, I was probably one of a hundred people who'd called Jim Fadiman out of the blue that week. But for whatever reason, he picked up the phone and we spoke and I had this incredible sense that this was a person whose experience and expertise I could trust. In the 1960s, um, Dr. Fadiman was a psychedelic researcher, initially at Stanford and then at um, an institute in Um, here in Silicon Valley. His area of interest was particularly the effect of psychedelic drugs, specifically LSD, on creativity. And he did lots of research with people who went on to become pioneers in various Silicon Valley businesses like the emerging computer uh, industry, uh, bio bio researchers, architects, all sorts of people um, who became uh, pioneers and sort of c- had a creative spark in what later became the um, the kind of emergent businesses uh, businesses of Silicon Valley. And what uh, what uh, Dr. Fadiman did is he gave them psychedelic drugs, and they went, they had, and asked them to bring problems to intractable problems that they had been working on in their labs, in their offices, to the experimental room, and then they would work on those problems under the influence of LSD. And they had remarkable insights that I'll talk about more later. But Dr. Fadiman and I talked about LSD and we talked about this, this creativity research and we talked about the research that was going on at. Johns Hopkins and NYU and UCLA Harbor using psilocybin and other psychedelic drugs that operates very similarly on the brain as LSD to treat intractable depression, specifically depression in people facing the end of life and the remarkable results that were, we were starting to see there. And I grew more and more comfortable with what had, even before this phone conversation, been a very terrifying thing to me. And I decided, okay, I'm going to give it a try. Right now, I want to kill myself. It can't get worse than this. Um, And I live in Berkeley, California, so I thought that wanting to try LSD meant that I was going to just sort of, I don't know, walk out on the street and orange sunshine was going to rain down into my cupped ponds. (laughs) It never occurred to me that it would be difficult in Berkeley, California to find acid. but I am a middle-aged, middle-class mother of four. And the Venn diagram of LSD users and my middle-aged, middle-class mom of four, there's no, doesn't cr- no Venn in that <laughs> diagram. So Dr. Fadiman urged caution, and um, he, he she told me that it was important to be circumspect in my search for illegal drugs and to be quiet. And that did not work for me. So eventually I just started asking everybody I knew if they could get me some acid. <laughs> like everybody. Except my teenage children, who were probably the most likely to be able to get me some acid, but I couldn't go that far. So, I asked everybody I knew, everybody said no. Anytime I heard that someone had been to Burning Man, I tried to get invited to the same party. I, I know those people had it, but they looked at me and they thought, we're not giving, it." no, no. Um, and then one day I was at a cafe where I like to work in Oakland, and um, another person working on their type, we sort of struck up a conversation, and I asked him, because what the hell, by then I was asking total strangers. <laughs> And he said, "Um, you know, I heard about this microdosing thing, and I heard about a a professor somewhere in the Bay Area, I'm not sure. And this professor has been microdosing for decades. And my understanding is is that he's at the end of his life, and, you know, maybe he has some extra acid. (laughs) That didn't seem at all to make sense, but because by this point I had lost all sense of judgment, I happily gave the guy my address, and told him that if he ever met the professor to, you know, see if the professor might send me some. And two weeks later, I went out to my mailbox, and there was this little package festooned with the most brightly colored stamps, all sorts of different stamps, old stamps, stamps with like prices on them, like from before the forever, the exact kind of stamp an elderly professor might have in his bottom drawer and the return address read, Lewis Carroll. <laughs> and inside was a little bottle, that little cobalt blue bottle, and a poem, and instructions for use. And I'm not crazy at all. Well. Yes, I am, but not... I, I have a certain amount of good judgment. And my, one of the things that I always tell my children, because I did drug policy reform for so long, I have a harm reduction approach to, to using drugs with my kids. And the thing that I always tell my kids is you have to test your drugs. I don't actually care what you take as long as you test it and know what you're taking. It's most important to me that you don't die. So when they go out the door on their way to a party, I shout after them, Use a condom and test your Molly! <laughs> so I decided I had to test the contents of this little blue bottle, of course, because I'm a responsible person. I only you know, got it from some stranger and who knows where I got it. So I, um, I ordered an LSD testing kit. Does anybody have a guess from where? Exactly. Say it again loud. Exactly. I ordered my LSD testing kit from that purveyor of toilet paper and deeply discounted books. Uh, I tested my LSD. I made sure that what I was taking was in fact LSD and not something else. And I put those two drops on my tongue. And I was very nervous, even though I had done all my research, and I'll tell you all about that later on, even though I knew that this was a safe drug to take, I was very scared. You know, that inside of my head, it wasn't a place that I was really comfortable exploring. I sat down and I waited. I waited for the colors, even though I knew that it wasn't Going to happen. I waited for that bad trip, even though I knew it wasn't going to happen. I waited for Lucy in the sky with diamonds and the yellow submarine, even though I knew that wasn't going to happen. And nothing happened. And so I got my laptop out and I started working because, you know, I'm a, I have books due and um, scripts to write. And I started working and I, had a, I just was sitting at my desk doing what I normally well, I was actually at the kitchen table doing what I normally do. And at some point, I lifted my head and I looked out my window and there was a um, tree, a Japanese maple out in my garden. dog no, it was the dogwood, sorry. It It was a dogwood tree and it was springtime and the dogwood had gone into bloom. And I looked at the dogwood and I said to myself, look how beautiful those blossoms are. Now, it wasn't like the blossoms were flying around in space. There weren't kaleidoscopic colors. But it was just that I had been anhedonic for so long. I had been so devoid of the capacity to experience pleasure and experience beauty that I forgot what it was like to look at a beautiful blossom and say, that's beautiful. And suddenly, I felt it, and it was really that dramatic and that instant. I went from being suicidally depressed and unable to experience joy to looking out the window and finding myself exhilarated by beauty. Um, I went back to work. I finished my work for the day. I took a walk through Berkeley to lunch with a friend. And the jasmine was in bloom, and I smelled the jasmine. And I realized that the jasmine had been blooming for weeks, but I hadn't been able to smell it because I had been so caught in my own head and in my own unhappiness. Um, for the rest of that month, I took microdoses of LSD every three days. The idea behind the three-day structure is that the first day you're under the influence, so to speak, of that microdose, although it's sub so. The second day, peculiarly, most people, I included, feel an even more enhanced sense of well-being, sense of peace. And on the third day, you're kind of your return to baseline. It's a way to evaluate what the other two days have been like. And um, for me, my feeling on that third day was always, Oh, no, there you are again. Okay. Um, I did ten cycles, the contents of my little blue bottle. And after the first day, I began writing about what I was feeling. I was really just taking notes because Dr. Fadiman asked psychedelic explorers, of which I found, suddenly found myself to be one, to take notes for this kind of ad hoc participatory experiment that he was doing, basically just digesting the experiences of all these people. And so I took notes. Every day I, I assessed my mood, how much sleep I had gotten, what, um, whether I had meditated successfully, not a very, uh, I had never been able to force myself to meditate before, um, whether I had any outbursts of anger or irritability, whether I had any conflict with people, and then I would just let myself write whatever I wanted. And after about five or six days, I realized that what I was writing was actually a book. And And what I was writing was the book that LSD wrote. It's not a psychedelic book at all. But what LSD does cognitively from a a neurological perspective in your brain is, to be to simplify it, it allows different parts of your brain to communicate in unusual ways, in ways that they don't normally communicate. And the book that I wrote over the course of that month is a book that's all sorts of different things, but they communicate communicate in unusual and, I think, for me, at least, exciting ways. It's a book about um, microdosing. It's a book about the history of psychedelics. It's a book about the um, criminal justice system. And it's a memoir of my own struggles with mental illness, my marriage, my children. And all of those integrate into this one whole. Um, I did, in fact, write the book over the course of that month. You know, people who microdose, some people do it for lots of different reasons. Some people do it for mental health. Some people do it as a kind of alternative to Adderall or Ritalin because it enhances productivity. Um, I wasn't really in it for that, but, you know, it certainly helped me. I don't think I would have been able to write a book in a month if it hadn't been for the LSD. Um, And uh, and what I realized at the end of the experience was I I went into it looking for a medication. And in a sense, I found that. But more importantly, what I found was a tool to allow me to be receptive, to the kinds of therapy and different ways of thinking that would allow me to not control my moods, but rather experience what it was like to not be buffeted by them, to live in this brain and this body and not be so afraid of what was inside my own head. And um, I'd love to talk to you all more about it later. Thank you so much.
1: And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of Sand content, available exclusively to Sand members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.